bow with me in prayer. Our Father, we open the word uh, this morning now to examine it in detail and in specific. John's narrative of, of the events of the resurrection and, and those who encountered the resurrected Lord Jesus. Father, I pray your spirit would work in all of our hearts this morning that we might come to your word with a heart of faith. Father, that we would not be skeptics, but that your spirit would enable us to embrace fully, completely, and confidently the truth contained herein. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved, for many, many people, high school and college years are a time of testing. It's a time when young people tend to test their wings, so to speak. It's a time when they branch out often intellectually, socially, and even spiritually. It's a time when they either accept or reject their parents' values, often. It's a time when they are very open to new ideas and seek to validate old ones. I was a product of the 1970s, the early 1970s, and growing up in that period of time, I, in my high school years, experimented with atheism. I was filled with the arrogance of youth and, and prone to argumentation, and so I found no greater satisfaction than engaging people in arguments uh, regarding the existence of God. And the foolishness of those days uh, reached a peak when uh, one afternoon I included God in the argument and I dared him to strike me down in order to prove his existence to me. Uh, mercifully, Mercifully, the Lord took me up a couple of months later on that dare, but not in the way that I had intended it. As a result of a high-speed collision with a baseball, my life changed very, very dramatically. Like many skeptics, including the one that we're to read about here this morning, I went from a heart of unbelief to a heart of faith in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Christ saved me, a former atheist. Open your Bibles, if you've not already, to John's Gospel and the 20th chapter the 20th chapter of John's Gospel, and in particular this morning we will be looking at verses 24 through 29, but I would like to take up the reading as we begin in verse 19 through the end of the chapter. So we will take up the reading this morning in John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19 through the end of the chapter. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. Be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. 
And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life. In his name. This morning, as we zero in on verses 24 through 29, we will find here four lessons. Four lessons regarding belief and unbelief drawn from the life of Thomas. Four lessons regarding belief and unbelief drawn from the life of Thomas so that we do not live like skeptics. So that we do not live like skeptics. The first of those lessons in verses 24 and 25 is what I'm calling Thomas's ridiculous requirement. Thomas's ridiculous requirement. Now, let's get a little bit of background here as we Work our way into this. The prevailing emotion that first Easter evening was one of fear. It was one of fear. The little apostolic band had virtually disintegrated by this point. A couple of days before, Peter had denied Christ three times after saying just a couple of hours before that that he was willing even to die for him, that he would never deny him. And yet three times he denied Christ. Peter, the, the, the leader of the band. Judas, one of the twelve, had committed suicide after betraying Christ. And Jesus himself had been crucified on a Roman cross for sedition. This little apostolic band, this little group of disciples, had virtually disintegrated by this point. And yet, throughout the day leading up to that evening, various reports had filtered out about some women who, who had been told by some angels that Jesus was alive. Mary Magdalene and Peter both said they had seen him. There was also circulating by this time throughout the city of Jerusalem a report that the disciples had come and stolen the body. And that's why the grave was empty. This would only increase the likelihood that any follower of Jesus would be rounded up 
by a bloodthirsty Sanhedrin and delivered over to the Romans for a fate similar to that which Christ himself had undergone. They were fearful, very fearful. And so, at the time of the evening meal, ten of the disciples had gathered together in a, in a room behind locked doors, and they had gathered in order to discuss what all of this would mean. What, what was going on? What did it mean? Absent from that group was one of the twelve disciples, Thomas. Thomas. As the group is, is meeting together, and they're discussing the, the various accounts that are... Cleopas and his companion come and, and knock on the door and, and ask to be admitted. And, and they have hurriedly traveled the, the seven miles back to Jerusalem from the small village of Emmaus, and they have come with the most amazing news, that they have walked with Christ and broken bread together. And then he had vanished. And then he had vanished. It is at this point where, verse 19, John takes up the narrative. That Jesus appears there in the room, and the disciples are are overwhelmed with joy in the presence of their resurrected Savior. But Thomas is missing. Thomas is missing. Verse 24, right? But Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. Next in John's narrative here, he relates for us another appearance of the resurrected Christ, and, and this one occurs chiefly for the benefit of Thomas. Thomas, verse 24, called Didymus, Didymus is Greek and it means twin, was an interesting guy. We don't know a ton about him, but we know something of his character. He evidently had a twin brother or twin sister and thus bore the nickname twin. He makes only two other appearances, actually, in John's Gospel, over in chapter 11, and you can go ahead and, and turn there. It's Because there he shows himself to be a loyal pessimist, a loyal pessimist. Over in, in John chapter 11, that's where Jesus' friend Lazarus is dead, right? And so Jesus is going to go to Lazarus, and, and he is warned that if he is to go there, he's going to go right into the belly of the beast, as it were, because Lazarus uh, lived and died just outside of Jerusalem, and there was already a price on Jesus' head by this time. So to go was to, was to risk arrest and death. But Jesus says he is going. And so over in chapter 11 and verse 16, we just get this little snippet from Thomas. Verse 16, Therefore Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go so that we may die with him. I don't think he said that in like a, you know, with bravado. I think it perhaps was more the Eeyore kind of approach. We might as well go and die together with him, you know. So he's loyal, but he's definitely a pessimist. He appears again in chapter 14 and verse 5. And, and there he's just sort of obtuse. So he's a loyal pessimist, but, he, but he's, he's a bit spiritually obtuse. Verse 
Here in chapter 14, Jesus says, right, that verse 2, In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. And then Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And, of course, Jesus goes on from there. So, poor Thomas, just a bit dull. This is really good, I think, because we can certainly, many of us, identify with the dullness and the pessimism, the skeptical nature, I guess you might say, of Thomas. Now, Thomas ends his life well. The church tradition reports that he went on to India and was used mightily of the Lord in India to plant many Christian churches among the Indian people where he ultimately died by being speared to death. He died a martyr. Now, the reason for Thomas' absence on that first Easter evening is not explained. It's not explained. And I think we should be careful about judging motives in all of this. Perhaps he was just overcome with grief and still couldn't bring himself. We're not sure why he wasn't there that first Easter night, but he wasn't in that Sunday evening. It should be noted, I think, that Jesus nowhere rebukes him for missing out on that first appearance. But look at verse 25, and this is where it gets really instructive for us. The other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. In other words, Thomas has not personally witnessed the resurrected Christ. He he wasn't there for that appearance, that Sunday evening of, of the first Easter Sunday. But the apostles have certainly told him about it. They were saying to him, No doubt in excruciating detail, I would think. They are narrating during this following week. Verse 26, you see, eight days later, the appearance occurs. So for a week, from a Sunday evening to a Sunday evening, that's how you get the eight days, for a full week, the disciples, the eyewitnesses, are telling Thomas over and over and over again, we have seen the Lord. We have seen the Lord, verse 25. In other words, he couldn't possibly have missed it. Yet in spite of their eyewitness testimony, Thomas is not buying it, right? He is not buying it. He refuses here, verse 26, or 25, right? He said to them, unless... I see, I will not believe. He he refuses to believe in the resurrected Jesus unless Jesus meets a set of personal criteria that Thomas himself is going to construct. I will not believe unless Jesus does the following for me. Hearing the testimony, the word of the other witnesses, the apostles, is not sufficient for him. He wants proof. And he wants his own kind of proof. His own kind of proof. What are his requirements here? His ridiculous requirements, sinfully ridiculous requirements. Well, they are both visual and tactile, right? Verse 25. Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. He's got, I've got to see the nail holes. I've got to put my finger through them, and I've got to stick my hand up into his side where the spear wound is. 
Unless he submits to that, I will not believe. Now, Jesus showed his wounds to his other disciples in that first encounter, didn't he? You see that in verse 20. He showed them both his hands and his side, and they rejoiced. But for Thomas, he's got to see it, and he's got to touch it. And in fact, no other individual, this is what makes it stand out, I think, is that no other individual anywhere in the New Testament ever makes demands like these. These are unique. In effect, what Thomas is saying is, if you want me to believe your story, then my demands must be fulfilled. My requirements for proof must be fulfilled, and if they're not, I will not believe. I will not believe. Beloved, it's important that we understand what's going on here. It's important that we understand what's going on here. Self-constructed demands for evidence are not a demonstration of neutrality. Thomas is not neutral with regard to the resurrection of Christ here. They are rather unbelief masquerading as neutrality. Thomas is gripped at this point with unbelief. He is not neutral. He is not neutral. And he he vividly illustrates the, the reality that the unbelieving heart, when it makes demands for evidence, is got behind it an arrogant assumption that in my fallenness, I am capable of processing and properly evaluating whatever evidence there might be and determining what is true and what is not. That is the height of unbelief. For it is to set oneself as God. Why are Thomas's requirements here so sinfully ridiculous? It's because he should have believed the testimony of the eyewitnesses. He should have believed. How do I know that? Because over in Mark chapter 16 and verse 14... We find narrated there Jesus' words where it says, Afterward he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. He should have believed the witnesses. should have believed. So the first lesson is Thomas's ridiculous requirement of evidence. Secondly, secondly, we find Jesus' revealing response in verses 26 and 27. And after eight days... Again, his disciples were inside. I told you, so it's a, a following week, another Sunday evening, and Thomas is with them. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut. And so it's implying the exact same kind of circumstances. They're shut, they're locked. And Jesus came and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. So again, a week hence, They're sequestered behind locked doors, and Jesus suddenly appears in their midst. This is the second resurrection appearance of Christ that John is narrating here. Just like he had done the previous week, Jesus pronounces the blessing of peace upon them. But then notice he turns and directly begins to address Thomas, verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, So this one's for Thomas's benefit and for ours. Reach here your finger and see my hands 
and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. In a most remarkable and condescending way, Jesus actually stoops to Thomas's conditions. And what I want you to see here is how Jesus matches him one for one. Thomas says, unless I see his hands and the imprint of the nails, Jesus says here, what? See my hands. Thomas said, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and Jesus says, reach here your finger. Thomas says, and put my hand into his side, and Jesus says, reach here your hand and put it into my side. Thomas says, I will not believe. And Jesus says, be not unbelieving, but believing. But beloved, there's, there's a lot going on here, and it's far much more than just a simple physical display. It's, it's more than just Jesus uh, acquiescing, as it, acquiescing, as it were, to, to Thomas's demands. I mean, think with me for a moment on all of this. Why didn't Thomas uh, just answer Jesus and said, well, what do you know? You are alive. Right? Why wasn't Thomas just intrigued by it all? How did you get here? Where'd you come from? Why did he respond like he did in verse 28 with such a bold confession of faith. In fact, verse 29 seems to indicate that, that Thomas never got around to actually touching Jesus. Jesus offered it to him, but, but the text, I think, kind of intimates here that, that, that when Jesus appeared, Thomas decided, well, you know, maybe I don't really need to touch you. There's no indication that he did. What changed? What changed? Well, you know it changed. Thomas had been confronted by the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and that changes everything. Everything. This is, this is no more simply a, a, a matter of historical inquiry. This is, this, is, this is not just a curiosity thing anymore. This is not a, well, you know, you said this, but I, I don't believe that. And, oh, well, I guess you were right. He has now encountered the living Lord. I think it's fascinating. Jesus demonstrates his omniscience, right? He knows Thomas's demands. He, Thomas wasn't there, remember? Jesus matches him point for point. It's also interesting when Jesus says, peace be with you, verse 26. Showing him his wounds. One cannot help but be drawn to Isaiah chapter 53 and verses 5 and 6, where there the prophet had written 750 years prior, he, Messiah, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Peace be with you. Peace. I have purchased your peace. Beloved, the tables have now turned for Thomas. They have now turned. Jesus is no longer on trial in Thomas's court. But rather, Thomas is now on trial before the Lord of the universe. And he has just been found wanting. He has just been found wanting. What is the proper response for the evidence for Christianity? How should one respond 
to the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, intellectual assent is not sufficient. Well, golly, that's not good enough. It's not good enough. Nothing less than true faith will do. Nothing less. Right? Be not unbelieving, but believing. Now, evidence in and of itself can never produce faith. Faith is a work of the Spirit of God who quickens dead hearts, who unstops spiritually deaf ears, who, who removes the scales from spiritually blind eyes. That is the work of the Spirit of God. It's called being born again. But nevertheless, it is proper, it is proper to demand faith as a conclusion to the evidence for Christianity. Because even though the evidence does not produce the faith, it warrants it and justifies it. In other words, in the, in the face of the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it can never be left as, well, what do you think? Make up your own mind. Do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. No, it matters eternally. It matters eternally. One cannot properly evaluate the evidence for Christianity unless and until one believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, Jesus does not ask Thomas to make an unbiased or neutral judgment of the evidence here. Right? Rather, he authoritatively calls upon him to look at the evidence in faith. Do not be unbelieving, verse 27, but believing. And the reason is, is because unbelief is not a valid option. It is not a valid option. This second lesson here, Jesus' revealing response, is that in light of the evidence, unbelief is not a valid option. Not a valid option. Third, verse 28, Thomas's reverent reaction. Thomas's reverent reaction. Verse 28, Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Now this is a most amazing confession, especially on the lips of an Orthodox Jew. Thomas becomes the first recorded disciple to apply the title of God to the man Christ Jesus. Now, in our day and age, and particularly among the majority of us who are Gentiles and have been raised with a, with a notion or, or, or a belief in the, in the deity of Christ, Thomas's declaration here maybe is not all that spectacular to you. Well, you understand, you have to understand here that, that Thomas is a first century Jew. He is a first century Orthodox Jew. And if the first century Orthodox Jews knew anything, they knew that their God was not a man like the pagans. They had been taught that lesson in the 70 cruel years of the Babylonian captivity. They were fiercely committed to that reality. And so here you have on the lips of Thomas a confession of an idea that is contrary to everything he had ever been taught or known. All of his upbringing, in a moment, changed. Beyond that, it's not just that Thomas is making a general confession of the, of the universal lordship and, and deity 
of Jesus. He is making a very intensely personal statement about his own faith in the divine deliverer, right? My Lord, my God. This is very personal for him. Very personal. In that moment, in that moment when he came to believe that Jesus was actually risen from the dead, he came to realize something of what that resurrection implied. Mere men do not rise from the dead in this fashion. What he has now witnessed is without precedent. The one who had been dead is now alive and could and should be addressed with the language of worship. My Lord and my God. This is a, this is a statement of worship, of doxology. And beloved, this is how all who hear the testimony of the apostles should respond. Right? Look at verses 30 and 31. Why did John write this gospel? And why did he include this account? Many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. Listen, there are all kinds of things he did. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. In other words, John wants you to make your own confession of my Lord and my God. And in fact, the Apostle Paul says over in Philippians in chapter 2 and verses 10 and 11 that that. One day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, right? We do so this side of the grave by faith. Those who refuse this side of the grave will do so in the next at the point of the sword. Fourth lesson. Jesus' remarkable reassurance. Verse 29. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Blessed. Uh, makarios. Um, beatitudes. The, the beatitudes come from this word. The word Blessed. Interestingly, John only reports two beatitudes, two uses of this expression in his entire gospel. One over in chapter 13, verse 17, and the other one right here. What does it mean to be blessed? To be, to be blessed, it, it conveys more than just a sense of happiness. What it, what it fundamentally conveys is the, is the idea of having been accepted by God. Having been accepted by God. Jesus said to him, because you've seen me, have you believed? Blessed or, or accepted by God are they who do not see and yet believe. I mean, Thomas is like all the other witnesses here, right, of the resurrection. They saw, they believed. Some saw the empty tomb, some saw the grave clothes, they saw the resurrected Lord, and they believed. Yet Jesus here, in verse 29, he he is looking ahead, and, he, and he's foreseeing a time, and it's not going to be long, it's only 40 days hence, when people will not see him any longer. He will as soon ascend back to the Father, right? And when he ascends back to the Father and is seated at the Father's right hand where he resides right now, then all the world will have to go on is the testimony of those first eyewitnesses. Verse 
verses 30, 31. That's what we have here. The testimony of the first eyewitnesses. Now, you might think, well, it would, sure it would have been easier to believe if we could have seen him. But that's not what Jesus says. Beloved, it, it does not mean, and it should not mean, that our faith is somehow diminished because we are 2,000 years removed from this event. Or that our joy in the resurrection is somehow truncated because of the historical distance. Those who saw him, based on those encounters, right, in, the, in those early days, their faith is not more certain. It was not more certain compared to all the subsequent generations who believed upon their testimony. That's where this whole thing is driving. For them, faith came through sight. For us, faith comes not by sight, but by hearing or seeing the Word of God, right? The declaration of Christ. Romans 10 and verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. You are this morning in the presence of the witnesses. And you have received the testimony every bit as sure. In fact, many years later, the Apostle Peter would say it this way in 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. We have the Word of God, the testimony of the eyewitnesses. Blessed, blessed are they who hear and believe. This is Jesus' remarkable reassurance. All who turn to him in faith, based on the testimony of those witnesses, will be received by his Father. Their place is sure. So we have these lessons, beloved. How do we apply it all? Let's wrap it up together. Let me suggest some things for you. First, we should reject all self-constructed demands for evidence for what they really are. Thinly veiled expressions of unbelief. When your friends or family members respond to your Christian testimony and they want proof of the existence of God. No, they don't. No, they don't. They have set themselves in a place that no matter what evidence you would bring to them, they would reject it. They would never have enough to satisfy them because their problem is unbelief. And that they must repent of. In fact, the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 says it like this, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Understand the requests for evidence to be what they really are. Thinly veiled expressions of unbelief. Secondly, as Jesus clearly tells Thomas here, evidence creates an obligation to believe. Okay? Evidence creates an obligation to believe. There is evidence. There is all kinds of evidence. Luke 
talks about many convincing proofs over in Acts chapter 1. That Jesus presented himself alive over a period of 40 days by many convincing proofs, Luke says. There is tons of evidence. Tons of evidence. And that evidence creates an obligation to believe. In other words, and every time we, we read the Scriptures, every time we, we hear the Scriptures preached, we are confronted with the evidence. And it is evidence that demands a verdict. We are, under, we are under divine obligation to be not unbelieving but believing. Divine obligation. Right? So Jesus says to Thomas. Jesus calls on Thomas, third. He calls on Thomas to believe in the resurrection. Right? Why? Because it is Jesus' resurrection that validates his claims to be who he claimed to be. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be God. He claimed to, to come to, to deal with man's great problem, which is his alienation from God the Father. He came to, to live the righteous life that you and I cannot live and have not lived, yet must live. For as the Father, Jesus says of the Father in Matthew 5 and verse 48, you shall be holy because he is holy. And yet I'm not, nor are you. He came to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He, he came to give himself as a substitute, a ransom, to die in the place of his people, to, to assuage the wrath of God rightfully accumulated against my sin and yours. He claimed that all who believe in him have eternal life, not shall have someday endless existence, but will have eternal life. In other words, they will be brought into a loving relationship with God the Father through Him. I am the way, the truth, and the life, He said, right? No one comes to the Father but through me, and by that He declared all other religious expressions out of bounds. There is one way to God, and it is through Christ. And he validated all of that and more by predicting and accomplishing his own resurrection. He is the full payment for your sin. Now, in light of the way that Jesus treated Thomas here, I think it's incumbent upon me to adopt a similar approach with you here this morning. You have seen the Lord Jesus Christ in his resurrection glory. You have seen him, not with physical eyes, but you have been brought into his presence through the eyewitness testimony of his apostles. And so I would say to you, as Jesus said to Thomas, be not unbelieving, but believing. Today is the day of salvation. You are gathered here this morning with us, and, and we welcome you here. And there are many friends and family here this morning. And I, I look out and see many of these faces that are not familiar to me or only occasionally familiar. And I beseech you, and I command you in the authority of Christ that you turn from your sin and you flee headlong into the arms of Christ. That you turn away from your futile life your attempts to make yourself right with God 
in your own self-effort. Your foolish religious conceptions. Your self-constructed philosophies. And you turn to the one who is true. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, the resurrection of Jesus is the exclamation point upon his life and his ministry. It is the proof positive that he has conquered death. And since the wages of sin is death, by him conquering death, we have proof positive that he has conquered sin. And he conquered it not for himself, for there was no sin in him. He conquered it as a substitute on behalf of his people. And he turns, and with arms wide open, he beckons us to follow. And Father, may your Holy Spirit work even now in the lives of all of us, for we all struggle at times with an uncertain faith. And some here this morning have no faith at all. O oh Lord, be merciful to them to open their eyes to the truth and to save them. May this Resurrection Sunday be the beginning of a new life in Christ for them. O Father, be merciful to their soul. I beseech you on behalf of Christ, who died and rose that we might live forevermore. Amen and amen. Beloved, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Go in the strength of that knowledge. And love Christ with all your heart. God bless you.